And last week uh, we started Romans chapter 9 and we saw it as the great section that deals with the perspective that we need to have of God's dealing with the nation of Israel. Uh, I don't know of any other book that probably in the course of what it lays out in its doctrinal sense, in this case about the nation of Israel, I don't know of another book in the Bible that, that defines so many things within its context of laying out God's dealing with the nation of Israel. It's just almost verse after verse after verse we find uh, something else that God explains to us that not only has something to do with the nation of Israel but also has to do with us. And we know that chapter 9, 10, and 11, we talked about it, really focus on God's uh, dealing with the nation of Israel. Chapter 9 deals with the fact that God has uh, put them away, and it shows you why, because of their unbelief. Chapter 10 then shows you how that the gospel then went to the Gentiles. That's where we're at now. And chapter 11 is probably one of the greatest chapters, if not the greatest chapter, that really ties all of the Old Testament references together uh, as fact on the, on the aspect of, the, uh, of God restoring the nation of Israel. You remember we looked at eight concepts, eight concepts that Paul lays out in these passages that should have kept the nation of Israel on track. We now know that there was absolutely no reason for the nation of Israel to miss the first coming of Christ. They missed it because they lost sight of these eight things that Paul brings to our attention in, as we saw last week. I, I also showed you that those are the same uh, eight concepts in a spiritual sense that uh, keep us from missing uh, the second coming of Christ. And when I talk about missing the second coming of Christ, and I talk about Israel missing the first coming of Christ, I'm not talking about the fact that he came and they didn't know it. I'm talking about he came and they were not ready. Uh, God has an inheritance for them physically, as He has an inheritance for you and I spiritually. And just as Israel, because of the hardness of their heart and the blindness that they could not see the, 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 the principles that God was giving them through the Old Testament prophets, they not only missed the first coming of Christ, but they missed the blessings that go along with their inheritance. And many of us, many of God's people, will miss the blessings and the millennial inheritance that God has for them at the second coming of Christ. But today I want to look at another great area here laid out by Paul's opening remarks. And I think this will really help you today. And we're going to find that, you know, in Christianity, and I say this all the time, one of the problems that we have today that so many concepts in the Bible are badly defined. Pastors don't know the Bible. Churches, people don't know the Bible. And after generation a generation of people uh, kind of redefining the terms in the Bible or making up their own definitions of the terms, the church is in a bad state today as far as understanding many of the intimate things that we need to know. And we're going to look at another one today, and, and Paul makes reference to this. And I want to begin reading in Romans chapter 9 <clears throat> and pick it up through verses 1 through 5 again. Here's what he says. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and of the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. 
We love you today, Lord, and we ask you to take, uh, Lord, this passage again and, and teach us again today. Help us to understand the truth and the, the depth of this great passage and all of the things that we can learn from it as we uh, unearth these great truths that you have put in here in this great book. We thank you for those that are here today. We thank you for uh, this church that you've provided for us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the men and women who uh, love your word, men and women who, who wouldn't miss anything about the Bible. They want to desperately, so desperately, learn that Bible and help us to always to teach them and give them what they need. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Now look at verse 1. It says this, I say the truth, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Now I want to talk today out of this passage about our conscience. And I think it's something that most people uh, hear all the time. We talk about my conscience really bothers me or you have no conscience or, uh, and all that. But I want, to, I want to talk to you about it from the Bible standpoint. What exactly is our conscience? If you have a bad conscience, can you go to the doctor? And the doctor says you've got a really bad conscience. We've got to operate. If he cuts you open, where does he find a conscience? You can have a diseased liver, kidney. You can have heart problems. You can have a problem with your intestines. You can have a problem with your eyes. You can have a problem with your brain. You can have a problem with your muscle. And a doctor can cut you open and find that appropriate problem and deal with it one way or the other. What about your conscience? Now, I know we all know what, we, what we've heard all of our lives and what we've talked about all our lives, you know. But, but what is the Bible? How does the Bible define our conscience? I said earlier, we have a host of terminology that we use every day in life, but they're very nebulous. People talk about, well, I, I really love that person with all of my heart. Really? You're talking about the heart that's in here that pumps the blood through your body? We talk about somebody has emotional problems. Really? Where is exactly the emotion uh, in your, in your, inside you? How would you tag that? If somebody would say to you, well, she's a very an emotional person or he's got emotional issues, in your mind, what do you think of? I mean, besides somebody going around screaming and yelling and crying all the time, what do you think about? What is the emotion? What is your heart? Somebody says, well, you know what? You just, you, once you get something in your mind, you never change. Your mind. What's your mind? I mean, is it, this, is it up here in this brain? that pumps uh, all the electrodes and everything to your body and tells you what to do? Is that where your mind is at? You see, we use those terms all the time, and, and unfortunately, they get, we get so used to them. We use them in such a way that we, we, really, we really don't understand, from a Bible standpoint, how they all fit together. Somebody said, well, you know what? We're, we're really kindred spirits. Really? What does that mean? What does it mean when somebody uh, has a bad spirit? What does it mean when somebody says, well, I just... You know, I, I just, I get a bad spirit from that person. Well, what does that mean? I mean, uh, is that like a bad check? You know, you can't cash it. What, what is a bad spirit? What is the mind? What is the spirit? What is the emotion? What is your heart? And how does your conscience, how does your conscience fit into all of that? That's what we want to find today. Paul, in his writings throughout the Bible, and really the Bible itself, I don't know if you've ever noticed it, how much the Bible says about our conscience. Over there in Acts chapter 23, when Paul was being brought before his accusers, he says, and Paul, and Paul earnestly beholding the counsel said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. 
In Acts chapter 24, verse 16, when he's brought before Felix, the Roman governor, he says, And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now there's where he talks about a conscience void, uh, void of offense toward God. The other place he talks about having a good conscience toward God. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, Paul told Timothy that he was to hold the faith and have a good conscience which some have put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Then evidently, you can put away your conscience. Paul makes reference to it over and over. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, that false teachers had seared their conscience with a hot iron. Well, not only can you put it away then, but they're now he's talking about somebody searing their conscience. How do you do that? He told Titus in Titus chapter 1 verse 5 that the conscience of an unsaved man was defiled. And then he says in Romans chapter 9 verse 1 that he said that his conscience was bearing witness with the Holy Spirit of God on something. Add to that, remember when we came through Romans in Romans chapter 1? I told you the great chapter in Romans chapter 1 is God dealing with, with the Gentiles before the law. God has a whole dispensation from Adam right up to Moses where the law starts, where he deals with primarily the Gentiles, and the Bible tells us that in that period of time, he deals with man by their conscience. All through the Bible you find the phrase or the terminology or talking about a man's conscience. We saw in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, that as God was dealing with man, the Bible says, here's another one, Bible says that he wrote, he wrote the Word of God on their heart. Really? Boy, I hope if I ever get a heart transplant, I get one that somebody's got the Word of God written on it. I mean, if I took your heart out, if you took your heart out right now, is the Word of God written on that? What heart's he talking about? See, these are the things I'm talking about. We use the terminology, but we don't know how it works. And it's because we don't know how it works that many times we wind up getting into situations that we really wouldn't need to get into if you really understood what the Bible says. So when I come down through these things in Romans, I think it's very important to, to lay those out. There was a whole dispensation, a whole period of time where God dealt with man based on his conscience. Now you'd think that if you wanted to learn the Bible and once you knew that, you'd want to find out what that conscience is. He told, he told the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. Here's a good one. He says, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience. Now, you can have a, your conscience has a testimony. All through the Bible, he talks about it. Everywhere you go, you find it. Paul said over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 is the greatest, 2 Corinthians is the greatest book in the Bible on ministry you're ever going to find. And here's what he says, therefore... Seeing that we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, here it comes, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You know what the job is if you're a ministering in this church? You know what my job is as pastor? Your job is if you're working with somebody or you're in some ministry or responsible for some ministry, the Bible says that your job, and we'll get to this verse back a little bit later, but the Bible says your job is to command yourself, 
to every man's conscience. What does that mean? How do you do that? How do you do that? And then if that wasn't enough, in that great chapter in John chapter 8, the story of the woman that was taken in adultery. And you know what happens there. They're, they're, they're trying to set the Lord Jesus up, and they bring this woman to him, and they says, now this woman was taken in adultery, the very act. What are you going to do about it? And we know the Bible says that, that he, he kneels down and, or stoops down and he, he writes something on the ground with his finger. We don't know what he wrote, but I guess probably it was probably uh, out of Deuteronomy chapter 24, one of those places that where the law says, well, if you're going to bring the woman, the law says you've got to bring the man too. Where is the man? Of course, this thing was a sham and was a setup. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says in verse 8, and again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience. See that thing? Now, there's another reference to the conscience. So as we can see, conscience is pretty important in the Bible. It is something that we should probably understand. And so as Paul brings it up today, and he talks about having a, his conscience bearing witness with the Holy Spirit of God, and then he talks about having a good conscience toward God or a conscience not uh, avoid of any offense toward God. And we who want to minister, we're now told that we ought to commend ourselves to every man's conscience. <laughs> Maybe we better figure out what it is, huh? Maybe we ought to see what we got to do here. And to better understand this, we're going to nod to go back here and just talk for a moment how God made you and me. Now, we went through this in great, great, great detail when we came through Romans chapter 4, 5, and 6. But uh, the bottom line is we've got a lot of new people here, and as I say many, many times, the price of learning is repetition. But in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that when God made man, when God made Adam, he made him in, after his likeness and after his image. Now, we know that the image is the spiritual part of man. We know that the likeness is the physical part of man. And then we also know that God is a trinity. We know that, despite what the Jehovah Witnesses say, we know that He is a trinity. God manifests Himself in a triune form. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We know that. We, it can be very easily proved in the Bible. There's no problem with that. So God used Himself as a pattern. When He made man in His own image and His own likeness, then it's no, it's, it's no great mystery that God would make man in a trichotomy sense. So when God made man, God made man to have a body, He made man to have a soul, and He made man to have a spirit. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a saved person, you have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. If you're here this morning and you're an unsaved person, you also have a body and a soul and a spirit. But there's a difference between the two. Let me explain very quickly, very basically, so you kind of get a context for this. You take an unsaved man. An unsaved man does have a body. He does have a soul, and he does have a spirit. But here's the problem. In an unsaved man or an unsaved woman, the body and the soul, the physical and the spiritual, are stuck together. They're one. The, the flesh is sinful. When you put the soul to that and stick it to that, then the soul becomes sinful. That's why the Bible says in the Old Testament, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. An unsaved man has a body and a soul, but remember now, they are stuck together. Then he has a spirit. 
Now that spirit is his breath of life. It gives him the ability to walk around and to talk, to feel things, to see things, to experience things. But his spirit is dead in the sense that his spirit can have no connection or no fellowship with God whatsoever. You ever try to explain the Bible in any kind of depth to an unsaved person? You ever wonder why you see somebody who claims to be a religious person, but they're obviously lost? And you try to have a conversation about God and the Bible and what you're learning and what you know, they look at you like you're a tree full of owls. They can't follow you along. An unsaved man cannot grasp the things of the Word of God because his spirit is dead. And because his spirit is dead, he has no ability to have any kind of relationship with God whatsoever. So an unsaved man now has a body and a soul, they're stuck together. Then he has a spirit that gives him human life, but because it's devoid of a spiritual relationship with God, he's dead in his trespasses of sin. Now a saved man, we've talked about this before, like I said, so this is old half the some of you, but it's always good to hear it again. We know that a, a saved man, what happened when you got saved, your body and your soul were stuck together. We know what happened at God, Colossians chapter 2, with an operation made without God without hands. It's called spiritual circumcision. What did he do? He put off the flesh from the soul. He, he spiritually separated you. He, he, he cut you apart. And then what happened is this. Your flesh is over here. And now the Holy Spirit of God, the moment you got saved, once he separated you out, the Holy Spirit of God came down into your soul and sealed you. Because that's where God now is going to fellowship with you. Not in your flesh, but in your soul. At the same time, when that took place instantaneously, your spirit came alive. And now your spirit has the ability to to lead you and to guide you uh, from this point on. You see, once you got saved, once you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, your soul and flesh were separated, your spirit now becomes alive. Uh, it's, it's now, this is what makes you a new creature in Christ Jesus. I was driving out to someplace in Lee Summit the other day, and uh, there's this big billboard there uh, about this church out there, and they have, I guess they got a TV program called a Steve and Kathy Show. I've never seen it, but it's a, it's, a, it's a big billboard out there, you know. And underneath the bottom of it, it says, come to our church and, and uh, what did it say? Come to our church and let your spirit become alive. Now, you see, we use terminology like that, and it sounds good. Who doesn't want your spirit to be alive? And, and you, you get the idea, well, if I go to church, maybe my spirit will become alive. And, of course, we, we talk, we use terminology like that, which is totally void of any Bible doctrine whatsoever. But because it sounds good, and it sounds spiritual, and Steve and Kathy are such a nice pre-couple, and they make us laugh, and they're in a church, we just automatically buy into the terminology sometime because we don't investigate to find out what we do for ourselves. Where's my buddy Darren? The thing I love about Darren back here, I've been, Darren got saved about four or five weeks ago. And they come over and I'm discipling them, him and Kim. Lovely couple. Love Kim, love Darren. First thing that Darren did when he started coming through the Bible and he saw things he didn't understand, you know what he did? He went back there and got himself a, a dictionary, one of those 1811 dictionaries, and he said, I'm going to, and he, he looks up. In fact, last week when we were over, we were talking about something and he had already looked the word up. See? That's what you got to do. Don't just listen to me or anybody else. 
and take what I tell you, though I would never lie to you, but I may have an off day. <laughs> I'm not a right all the time. But the bottom line is you got to find out for yourself. And you, you, the only way you do that is to, to, is to explore these things. And it isn't a fact that you go to church and you go to this church or my church or their church and your spirit comes alive. That's not the way it works. The moment you got saved, your spirit came alive. See the difference? And you go around propagating that bad stuff and next somebody says, somebody says, well, you know what, uh, you, if you really want a spiritual awakening, come to our church. You got the, all the spiritual awakening you're ever going to get the day you got saved. And then it goes from there, well, you know what, we have a, we have a Sunday morning worship service. Or the pastor gets up and he says, we're going to worship God now with our tithes and our offerings. You realize that you couldn't worship God with your tithes and your offerings if you wanted to? You realize that there is no such thing as a worship service? But this is what happens when you get things like this messed up. Let me tell you something. The Bible says that in John chapter 4 that he that worship God must worship Him in spirit and truth. It's got to be your spirit and God's truth. Now, I'm just going to play the devil's advocate here. What does that do for Christians in churches that may be saved but don't have God's Bible? See? Worship is not a service. We don't, we, we don't, we don't say, come on, 1030, we're going to worship God. Thursday night Bible study. You ever hear me say, come and just worship God at Thursday night Bible study? Or this is a, let me tell you something. Worship is something that takes place inside you with your spirit and your soul that should go on in your life 24-7, 24 hours, 7 days a week. You don't go to a worship service. You live worship in your life and your relationship with his, your spirit, his spirit, and your soul. And that's why it, it, that, sh that sign should not say, come, let your spirit be alive. That should say, come and cleanse your spirit Get the filth out of it so you can have fellowship with God in the right way. That's the proper thing. Because you and I have to constantly cleanse that spirit. Because your soul saved, sealed. Your body's not trash. Paul says, inside my flesh dwells no good thing. But your, 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 your spirit not saved either. See? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about this and find out this thing about conscience. Now let's Let's identify, let's find within us our conscience. You take a saved man. He got his flesh, that'll be his old nature. I've already told you that flesh is totally corrupt, nothing good in it. Then you have his soul, that'll be his new nature. That soul is sealed and indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, it's real easy to understand it. Your flesh can't do anything right. Your soul can't do anything wrong once you're saved. See that thing? Now, we're going to find out what the, what the conscience is by the process of elimination. Conscience can't be in your flesh because there's some things that your conscience can do that will bring honor and glory to God. There ain't nothing in your flesh that will bring honor and glory to God. Your conscience or your spirit can't be in your soul because your soul is perfect. It never does anything wrong. And you're told from the Bible in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, that we're to cleanse our spirit from all filthiness and flesh. So it can't be that. So you're, this whole thing has to revolve around understanding your spirit. And your spirit is quite an interesting study in the Bible. Your spirit and my spirit. 
You see, your, your spirit is totally something else. Your flesh is totally corrupt. Your soul is totally perfect. And there's the difference. God separated you out. But you got a spirit. And that spirit, to me, the spirit has just been like this. And this is the easiest way to understand that if you're just somebody grasping all this. You have your flesh over here, and it's terrible. When you got saved, God separated it. And he put your soul over here and sealed it. Now, this part of you is corrupt. This part of you is perfect. This part of you is called the old nature. This part of you is called the new nature. Now, what you have in the middle of your spirit. You know what your spirit's like? This is the way I understand it because I'm a very simple person. Your, your, your spirit is like the rudder on a ship. Do you ever see a rudder on a ship? Do you ever see a ship in dry dock? And the ship is huge. And the rudder is such a small part back there. And we know what that rudder does? That rudder, if you turn the rudder this way, the ship goes one way. If you turn it this way, it goes another way. And that rudder is connected up through the ship to a wheelhouse or where the captain is. And the captain decides which way that ship is going to go. He says, hard to port. They turn that rudder, it goes to port. Hard to starboard. Turns it the other way, it goes to starboard. The rudder is what dictates which way that ship goes. And your spirit is just like that rudder. When you lend, once you get saved, you're saved over here, your new nature, your, your old flesh, is all your problems is totally corrupt. And you know as well as I do that once you get, make the decision to get saved, that's the great decision. But then basically, it shouldn't be this way, but it is. But then you have another decision you have to make. You know what that decision is? That's the decision, are you going to give it all to God or not? You know what determines that? Your spirit. And you know what determines your spirit? What determines your spirit is what you're going to lend yourself to. Now, I'm just like you. You're just like me. My spirit is the rudder in this ship. When I come to the place that, that if I take this spirit and I put it with things that are corruptible in the world, I hang out with the wrong crowd, I start doing the wrong things, that spirit then is going to be the conduit by which the things of the world go back and it's going to bring that flesh into my life and I'm going to become a worldly Christian. At the same time, if I take that sp same spirit and I take that spirit and I put it toward the things of God. I lend my spirit to the right music. I lend my spirit to the right things I read. I lend my spirit to the right things I look at. I lend my spirit to the right things that I think. See? Now we've covered the heart, the mind, all of these things lie within that spirit. Also within that spirit, you're going to see in just a moment, lies your conscience. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Now, when I lend my spirit to the things of the world, then I'm worldly. When I take my spirit and put it toward the things of God, then I'm godly. Let me tell you something. Let me give you a little secret in dealing with people. Let me give you a little secret in dealing with people. If you know what I'm about, what I'm telling you, and you use that in working with people, let me tell you something. People think that sometimes, uh, you know, I'm clairvoyant, that I can, I can tell, you know, when, when somebody's having a bad time or somebody's doing really well. You know what? You don't have to be clairvoyant. You know why? Because your spirit, your spirit is the first thing that reveals something outwardly that something wrong is inwardly. You know what God said to Cain? Remember Cain back in Genesis? You remember what happened, Cain and Abel, that they were supposed to bring offerings, and, and Cain, uh, uh, you know, Abel brought one of the first things to the flock, and Cain went out and got his vegetables out of the garden, and, and they were good vegetables. But it wasn't what God wanted. 
And so the Bible clearly says that God had respect unto Abel's, but he did not have respect unto Cain. Cain got an attitude. The first thing God says to him is the key when you want to deal with people and find out where people are. You know what he says? He says, why has thy countenance fallen? You know what that tells me? When something goes wrong on the inside, it shows on the outside. And when I see a Christian, any Christian, who loves the Bible, loves the Word of God, talking about getting people saved, trying to get people saved, got the joy, joy, joy down in the heart, got that sparkle in her eye about the Bible and God, and then one day you see him and the sparkle's gone, the joy's not there, that old worldly context, that countenance is back in place. Don't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going on. You have ceased lending your spirit to the things of God, and now you've turned your spirit back to your old buddies, back to the things you used to do. You know what life is, really? You want to talk about simplifying the Bible like we did yesterday? Let me simplify life for you. Life is you being two people, an old person and a young person, a new person in Christ Jesus and an old person in your sin. And your spirit, and all day long, 24-7, the world, your friends, good or bad, whoever, they try to pull your spirit one way or the other. You're driving down the road, and you're listening to the radio, and something comes on, and it, it, it moves you. You ever listen to music, good Christian music, and know and feel how good you feel after you listen to it, that maybe it just strikes some spiritual tone in your heart and tears begin to flow down your face because of that song that you heard meant something to you and it ministered to you? Do you know what it ministered to? It ministered to your soul. But you know how it ministered to your soul? Through your spirit. And when you get that spirit ministered to, it, it brings the emotions out because your emotions are within your spirit. And when you take that spirit and you lend it to the things of God, then you always are conscious of the things of God. Oh, conscious. Conscious. We're going to get the definition of the word conscious in just a moment. But keep that tucked that way. When you become aware of those things, you become conscious. We're going to come back there in just a second. If you, if you start, if you try to do right, and your old friends call you up on the phone and say, hey, let me tell you about this one, and he tells you a dirty joke, and you laugh at it because you don't want to know you're a Christian, or you go back on the work job, and after you're done working, your buddy say, come on, let's go get a beer, and you say to yourself, well, I'll go, but I just won't drink the beer because I don't want to let them know that I'm a Christian, and I'm going to try to be a secret agent, you know, for God and all that stuff. You know what? It doesn't work. You know why? Because there's a pull on your spirit. And the pull is to pull you toward God's way or toward back toward the world's way. We call it conscience. You know why we call it conscience? Let's say you're driving down the road on the way home from church and you're down here and you see a bad accident and two cars are crashed and they're flipped off the road, one's upside down. You're the first one there. And you pull the person out of the car because it starts to get on fire, you know, and you're sitting over there and nobody's coming. You get out your old trusty cell phone, you call 911. And you say, hey, I'm here at the scene of an accident. We need an ambulance down here. And I've got two people and I got them pulled out and uh, they're pretty bad. I need to help. You know what they're going to ask you, probably? They're going to ask you, they're going to say, are they conscious? See? Conscious simply means to be aware. You hear me use the term a lot, God consciousness? I use the term God consciousness in my own life and try to put it into your life, which simply means that you're always aware. You're conscious of what 
God and God's word is doing in your life. You know why the nation of Israel did not fulfill those eight things we talked about last week? Because they became unconscious to them. You know why some of God's people will never get everything they have with the second coming of Christ, the same eight things? It's because they go unconscious when it comes to the things of God. Your job and my job is to stay conscious to the things of God. How do you do that? Through your conscience. See that thing? Now let's talk about what that is. Let's talk about how the word conscience fits into your spirit of you staying conscious with what God wants you to do. Awake to something. Awake to something. Now here's the deal. Romans chapter 2 verse 15, going back to that, it says this. That when God made man, it says that he wrote the word of God on his heart. And then it says, their conscience also bearing witness. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 3 says, For as much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, Ah, here it comes. But with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, here it comes, but in fleshy tables of the heart. You know what God did to every man when He created him? He put the Word of God in His heart. The part of your heart which in your spirit, which contains your emotion and contains your decision-making process, your mind. And the thing that governs what you do, even as an unsaved man, is your conscience. Because the conscience is built on the law that God wrote in man's heart. This is why when you go to Africa, Aborigine, you go to the Congo, you go any place in this world where there is absolutely no society structure as you and I know it, where there's absolutely nothing that works the way you and I work in our society. You know what you find? You find in those indigenous cultures, you find where they have laws. They have moral laws. They have the penalties for things that you break. If you steal something in some of those African places, they cut your hand off. You steal something a second time, they cut your other hand off. If you steal a third time, they kill you. How do they know thou shalt not steal? How do they know thou shalt not murder? How do they know the things that you and I know when they don't have a Bible? Because the Bible says God wrote the Word of God on the tables of their heart, and that is what forms our being conscience our consciousness is we're conscious of the fact of the word of God because God wrote it in our heart and we cannot deny that and we live by it even when we don't understand it that's your conscience that's why in John chapter 8 remember the story I read you a little bit ago where the, they're trying to set the Lord Jesus Christ up and they bring this woman taken in adultery and they say uh, to, say to him they say uh, uh, this woman was taken in adultery uh, we know what the law saith what saith you they, they're not interested in what what the law says they want to see if they can trap him into not doing what the law says what he does doesn't answer him he goes down and he writes on the ground and we don't know what he wrote, as I said earlier, but probably out of Deuteronomy chapter 24, something to the fact that under the law, the woman and the man are supposed to be brought together. And the Bible says that at that point, they, they were convicted in their own conscience. You know why? Because God used the law. They had that law written in their heart. And the Holy Spirit of God took what he wrote, took what he had put in their hearts, and convicted them in their conscience, and they said, we're wrong. And they left. Your conscience is what keeps you conscious to the things of God 
and the Word of God, even in an unshaved man. An unshaved man may not be able to have a relationship with God like you and I have. An unshaved man or an unshaved woman may not be able to have the emotional relationship with God and the, and the ongoing relationship with God. But he will feel things, he will feel things about his family. He'll feel things about society. He'll hear this party or the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, whatever side he's party to, he will feel disdain toward one and association toward the other. He feels emotion. He feels things because inside him he has a spirit. It may be dead, but it, it, it's, a, it, it's there for the things of the world, but it's dead in his relationship with Christ. And the only thing he can get out of that conscience that brings him on any kind of moral line is the Word of God that God wrote in his heart when he made man. And that is the moral compass that every man has inside. And when God begins to deal with a man, when God begins before anybody gives him a track, long before he goes to hear a pastor preach or somebody witnesses to him, long before some place in his life, Bible says that he's the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And when God reaches down and touches that man and lights that man, and first introduces himself to that man, maybe it will be about an issue that, that the guy is pondering whether it's right or wrong. And God will come down and touch on the tables of his heart his conscience. And with what's written in his heart, God will take that and start the process. You know what Proverbs says? Here's another great verse on your spirit and your conscience. It's back there in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27. It says, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. Oh, what a great verse that is. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. You know what that verse says? When God starts to deal with a man, he deals with his spirit. When God's Holy Spirit walks down and deals with a man or tries to convict him about being saved, he doesn't deal with his flesh, totally corrupt. He can't even deal with his soul. Why? Because it's stuck together to his flesh and it's totally corrupt. He has to go after the one thing that is by itself to where the Word of God in a very basic way is inscribed on the tables of that heart and he deals with his conscience. He takes the Word of God that he wrote in his heart and he deals with him on that issue right there and then if the man goes forward, he gets more light. If he goes forward, he gets even more light. If he keeps going and questioning with the open heart, God gives him more light. And at some point, at some point, God gets him what he needs, who he needs, or whatever to make the right decision. Somebody raise your hand now and give me the greatest example of that in the Bible that we know. Anybody want to tell me what that is? That it illustrates what I just said. Where at? The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Classic example. If you read that story in Acts chapter 8, here's exactly what I mean. Here's exactly what I mean. Over in Samaria, they're having a great, great, great revival. Philip is the key evangelist. And, and hundreds of people are getting saved. But over there on Gaza, on the backside of the desert, an Ethiopian eunuch is on his way up to Jerusalem to worship. Somewhere along the way, somewhere along the way, somebody gave him a copy of Isaiah. And I don't even know if it was a copy of Isaiah. It may have just been a page or a chapter of Isaiah, but he got the right chapter. He got Isaiah chapter 53. And he's sitting on the back of that chariot reading Isaiah chapter 53, but he can't understand it. Why? Because the natural man received not the things of the Spirit of God. Neither can he know them. But God saw his heart. 
And in his heart, God saw a man who was responding through his conscience of what God had given him. And here he is, 800 miles away, out in the middle of the desert. God reaches over and, and, and pulls out Philip out of Samaria, jets him all the way over and puts him down about 100 yards in that guy's chariot and says, now go join thyself to that guy's chariot. Philip goes up. He says, what are you reading? Do you understand what you read? Guy says, how in the world do I understand this? Some shan should guide me. And Philip, the Bible says, sat down and opened up the same scriptures and preached unto him Jesus. You know what happened? He got saved. Did you ever backtrack the process? You see, here's a man that somebody gave the gospel of Isaiah to. Here's a man that somebody before that, he wondered in his heart about God, somewhere, some form. God touched him. God lighted him in his spirit, in his conscience. And at that point, the man said, I want to know more. So somehow, we're not told how, he picks up a copy of Isaiah 53. I had a missionary many, many, many years ago that was in the interior of Africa. He had a mission station. was way out by nowhere with this tribe. And he said, one day a man came in, and they had these little yellow tracks that they used to pass out in Swahili. And he used to give them to the church. And one day a guy from another tribe that nobody had ever seen came in and, and said, uh, this track says that if I got saved or I did this, that I could have a Bible, a copy of the Word of God. I'd like, to, I'd like to have that Bible. Are you the one that gives it to me? The guy looked at him and said, where are you from? And he talked about a tribe that was 60, 70, 80 miles away. And the guy says, how did you get that track? And he said, well, we were walking out the desert, coming back from, our, from filling water or doing whatever they're doing. And he said, I looked up, and out out there about 100 yards, I saw something catch my eye, and it was blowing across the desert floor. And I walked over and picked it up, and it was this track that told me about Jesus as my Savior. He said, now, can I have my Bible? You see, in his heart, in his heart, he wanted to know about God. No missionary. No nothing. In his heart, he looked up at the stars of the sky. I don't know. That's how God dealt with Abraham. And he said, there must be something more to this. And God's up there says, yeah, there sure is. And here it comes. So he's out there. How in the world did a track get, um, get, get 80 miles from the mission station out in the desert and happen to blow up? I don't know. I don't know that any more than I know who give the old Ethiopian eunuch Isaiah 53. But that's God's business because he's the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. But when he lights him, he lights him through the candle of the Spirit. And the Spirit he uses is the conscience that has the Word of God already written on it. And God just takes that thing and uses it. Where it works. It's the way it works. And of course, the Ethiopian got saved and that's how he did it. You see, I don't believe for a moment. I don't believe for a moment. You've heard me say this before in Bible study. I don't believe this for a moment. Do you ever stop and ask yourself what, what in the world is going on? I mean, here's Jesus, first coming of Christ. He's over in Jerusalem. And he's going around over there and people are getting saved and meeting people and healing the sick, giving eyesight back to the blind. He gives the 12 disciples and he gives them their marching orders. But he, and they only go to a small group. And then it's probably, it's probably, what, two or three hundred years after that before really missionaries start going out in any basic form. Let me ask you a question. What happened to all the American Indians over here during that time? Was it just born in the wrong dispensation? Was it sorry about you, tough luck, can't help you? 
You should have been on the other side of the hemisphere. Do you really believe for a moment that all the American Indians and all the Eskimos and all the people down in Central America and South America, wherever the case, do you actually believe that while Christ was coming to this planet and before that, do you actually believe that they were just doomed to hell and, 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 and weren't no way to be saved? There was no missionary, there was no Bible in that interim period there called the times of the Gentiles. Do you really believe that God just let them all die and go to hell? I know He didn't based on that verse in John. I know he didn't. I know that if God doesn't have a Bible as his witness, if he doesn't have you as his witness to declare the glory of God, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God, and he'll use that. And what happens is that, that, that American Indian, he got looking at those stars or some natural thing that God did, and he got thinking in his mind. He got thinking in his mind about, about there has to be something more to this. And God dealt with his conscience. He may not have had a Bible in his hand, but in his conscience, in his heart, he had the Word of God written. And that's what God used. I know this. I know that when the pilgrims first came in the 1600s to this country, they weren't here 15, 20 years. Then a tribe, a tribe of Indians came over to them and had come all the way from Washington State and came across there because they heard the white man was here and they wanted to get the book that the white man had that talked about the great white father's son who died for their sin. Now, how did they get that? I know this. The American Indian talks about a great white father now, that may not be the terminology we you use, but I'll tell you what, if you know anything about the book of Revelation chapter 1, that's about as close as you can get to God in a good Bible definition as you're going to find, white as the light. He talks about the great spirit. Now, we may not be Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, or whatever, but he's talking about a great spirit. I'll tell you something else. When an old Indian went out there and he, he, he shot that deer and it shot that buffalo and that thing fell down on the ground, you know the first thing he did? He went over there and he put his arrows down here and he knelt down on the ground and he gave thanks to the great white spirit and the great white father for bringing the buffalo to him. That's more than some of God's people do. You sit down and eat that hamburger, eat that whatever. Don't even thank your father for giving it to you. And they're the heathen. See how it works? God always has his way of getting it done. And the fact that I can't understand it doesn't mean that it didn't get done. But when he does get done, it got done through his mind, his heart, his conscience, which is in his spirit. Because the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of man is the candle. It's the first flickering light when God lights that man with the light of the gospel. And that candle, if he pursues it and goes after it, goes into a great bonfire that will set the whole world on fire. You see, when you got saved, God lit your fire. My job is to get into a forest fire and get you to blaze up the world. Like a guy said one time, you know what? If I, all we need is a preacher. If we had a preacher that would get on fire for God, the whole town come watch him burn. If we had Christians get on fire for God, everybody would want to stand around and watch you burn. That's our problem. Now, a saved man, once his spirit becomes alive through salvation, he now has a, he has a, we have a double awareness of God. We have a double awareness of God in a double sense of right and wrong. We have our conscience, which is basically the Word of God written in our hearts, and then we have the Holy Spirit of God on top of that, which bears testimony and witness to what we do and in the Word of God. So we have a double whammy. 
The Word of God's written in your heart. The Holy Spirit of God lives on the inside, which is the Word of God. And then you, what you feel in your heart is, is, is lining your life up through your conscience of what you know. And the Holy Spirit of God is the Word of God. And you, you, you know when you do something wrong and you do something right. There's no question about it. This brings us right back to what we've harped on and harped on and harped on. The absolute necessity for you learning biblical principles in your life. The conscience of the saved man is built around biblical principles that start with the writing of the Word of God in his heart and then you building biblical principles into your life that you may feed into the Holy Spirit of God that your, witness, your spirit bears witness with His Spirit. And now the principles of the Word of God provide the guidelines, the moral compass for your conscience through the Holy Spirit of God. And when we don't do that, what do we do? Then we grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Because the thing that is the key to your fellowship is not your soul. Your soul is Jesus Christ. He ain't going to fellowship with himself. He's in you. It isn't your flesh, because in your flesh dwelleth no good thing. The thing that is the key to your fellowship is your spirit. And in that spirit is your mind, which is what you choose to do. In that spirit is your heart, who you give it to, her or him, God. In your, and, in your, and in your spirit is your conscience, which makes you decide and gets you, under the, gets you the, the feeling of the Holy Spirit of God through the Word of God of what's right and what's wrong in your life. A good conscience toward God. And we see it over and over again. Paul remarking uh, over and over that we are always to have a good conscience toward God. A testimony of our conscience. Let's talk about how we do that for a moment. One of the greatest verses for us in ministry. For me personally. For you if you're ever going to do anything for God in ministry. Is the one we looked at briefly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to turn back to it. Verses 1 and 2. I don't know of another verse in the Bible that sums up the Christian life in dealing with people and being used of God to the point that it shows you what will work and what won't and why it doesn't when it does. He says this. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry. All right, we got a ministry. You want to minister to people? You want to work with people? You want to help people? You want to come to me and say, well, so-and-so's got some needs and I want to help them. I want to get involved in this. I want to take a bite out of this thing. I want to do something before God comes back. I want to be, I want to be used to God. Put me to work. Let me disciple somebody. Let me work with somebody. Let me help in the marital situation of the young couple's ministry. Let me work with people. Okay, you want that? Then here's the verse for you. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, whatever your ministry is, as we, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the Word of God deceitfully. All right? The three things that are the downside of ministry. Right there it is. The first one is dishonesty. Not being honest with what you're trying to do in somebody's life. The second thing is walking in craftiness. That's an ulterior motive. That is, that is, you've got some private agenda other than just doing what God wants you to do. And the third one, my goodness, the third one, handling the Word of God deceitfully. You know what? 
I put those things out to you, but I want to say also to you that I think that most of you, if not all of you, when you work in a ministry here, these three things are not an issue for you because I think you do it here anyhow because of, of the love that you have in your heart and you want to serve God. That doesn't mean you don't make some mistakes, but the bottom line is at the end of the day, you're giving it everything you've got. But my, 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 how that verse and those three things there smack right in the face of our 20th, 1st and 20th century churches today with pastors who are dishonest about what they're doing in the ministry, who walk in craftiness, who always have an ulterior motive, and you're going to pay for it, by the way. And most, and boy, the most damaging thing, handling the Word of God deceitfully. Not giving you the truth out of the Bible. Giving you what you want to hear versus not what you need to hear. Taking a stand on the Word of God and preaching it. I had a couple of people this week we had talked about, and they were, they were talking about a couple of churches that they, they, had, they had visited, and they were, wanted to know my opinion on it, and I don't really give my opinion, but I, but I like to hear what people say. And they were saying, and these two churches, both of them, neither one of them, believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. And the one person had come, come to me a while ago, and they said, uh, we think we're going to try this church, what do you think? And I said, well, personally, I said, I don't. I don't think it's a, uh, I, I, it's not a King James church. Well, they went and talked to the pastor, and the pastor said, no, I preach out of the King James Bible. And they come back and they said, well, no, uh, we talked to the pastor, and he, he uses the King James Bible. And I said, let me tell you something. I know the guy. He may preach out of a King James Bible, but he doesn't believe the King James Bible is the Word of God any more than, than my dogs do. But go do what you got to do. So they tried his church, got their kids involved in Sunday school. Now these people were pretty strong King James people. And the point was that about two weeks ago, their daughters come out of Sunday school, run away home. Their daughter said to both of them, hey, mommy and daddy, will you buy us an NIV? They said, what do you mean buy an NIV? She said, we want to be like all the other kids in our Sunday school class. And we got King's Age Bible. Nobody else in our Sunday school class uses it. And we can't understand what's going on. So can you go out this afternoon or this week before next Sunday and get us two NIVs? Now here's the way it works. This is what's called deceitfulness. Handling the Word of God deceitfully. Pastors know there's people out there that are looking for people who use the King's Age Bible. So the pastor will use it from the pulpit because he's a crook and he's deceitful. But he'll never take a stand on it and teach manuscript evidence to his people why they should not use anything other than the King James Bible. And unless the people in his Sunday school classes use whatever they want and people in the church bring whatever they want. So he puts on a front that, yes, we are, I am a, I use, are you a King James Bible church? Oh, yes, I use the King James Bible when I preach. Yeah, and everybody else in the church brings what they want, and in your Sunday school class, everybody uses, uses the NIV. Why? Because he may preach from it, but he's never taken a stand and says, there'll never be a Sunday school teacher, there'll never be a pastor, there'll never be anybody in ministry that uses anything else than God's Word. Now, for the next six weeks, let me walk you through manuscript evidence in church history and show you why. Nope, won't work. And that's where we're at. That's where we're at. All right, here's what we're supposed to do. You want a verse? You want to have a good conscience toward God? Okay, here it comes. Verse 2. 
but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Here it comes. But by manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You know what that verse means? You know what real ministry is? It's you taking, first of all, living the Word of God, second of all, taking the Word of God, and through your ministry, open and transparent, commending men the truth that there's nothing hidden, that you can see everything there is, that you can ask any question you want to ask, that you feel free to dig into anything and say, I don't understand this, or why do you teach this, or why do you believe this, and you'll never get back. You need to be quiet, son. There's people here, this is the Bible stuff. You get the answer that you're looking for and that you need because a ministry, as your life and my life, needs to commend itself to every man's conscience. And in that conscience is the Word of God. And when you teach what's right, people know what you're teaching is right if they understand what they're looking for. A good conscience toward God and man is simply living your life by the principles of the Word of God in any given situation, doing what's right based on biblical principles and resting in that and not allowing your emotions to dictate what you do. Following the Bible principles in good situations and bad situations, doing what the Bible says. That brings about a good conscience toward God. Now let me show you a great example of this in the Bible. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Show you a great example of this. Great example. Great example of this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Now, in, when you get into, when we have our, we have our uh, uh, anniversary Sunday next week, and we always baptize. We don't have a baptismal here. Oh, we got to do it when we can, so we, uh, we do it uh, every year anniversary Sunday. Ever gets to the point where we need to do it twice a year, three times a year, we'll do it. But the bottom line is, why do we baptize? Well, and you have a lot of controversy about this. Some people say, well, you know what, you don't have to be baptized uh, to be a Christian. Well, you know what, I understand that. Somebody says, well, you don't have to be baptized uh, to go to heaven. No, I understand that too. Yeah, the whole thing. But the bottom line is this. Let me show you what we got. The baptism, and here's the thing you're up against. Somebody said, well, you know, I'm saved, but I've never been baptized because, you know what, um, you know, I just, uh, I don't know if it's that important. You know what, and by the say, you know, I'm saved, and that's all I care about. You know what, here's the principle. In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and all the way through the books of the Bible, every man and every woman that was ever saved was baptized. In fact, it's such an important thing in the Bible that when God gave the church what we call the ordinances, this will be discipleship lesson number two, he gave them two ordinances. He gave them the Lord's Supper and baptism. Somebody says, well, I don't want to be baptized because I don't know that I have to be that to go to heaven. No, you don't. But the bottom line is, what do you do with the fact that everybody in the New Testament church recognized what it was and then got baptized? Now, here's, here's what it is. You want to know what it is? Sure, you can go to heaven without it. No problem. You can, go, you can be a member of a church without it. You, but let me, show you, let me show you what you can't do without it. That's why I love the Bible. Look at this thing. Verse 21. The like figure, where I'm in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. The like figure, whereunto even baptism does also now save us. Now, now i got to stop there because, boy, do people like that verse. See, 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 baptism saves you. Baptism saves you. See, 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 baptism saves you. No, no. What did we talk about yesterday? Context. Watch the context. Not every time you find the word saved in the Bible does it mean salvation. 
Let's see what this person is being saved from. The like figure whereunto even baptism does also now save us. And look at the little parentheses. Not putting away the filth of the flesh. That's the day you got saved. But what does it save you from? But the answer of a good conscience toward God. See that thing? Then baptism for a believer puts you in the mindset that you're in good conscience before God because of how important baptism is and what it represents in the Bible to God, why he gave it as one of the two ordinances. And a person who refuses to be baptized or won't be baptized cannot, is not saved from having a, a bad conscience toward God. They have a bad conscience toward God or God toward them because they will not follow through with what the Bible says. That's the greatest example I know of in the Bible of having a good conscience toward God. Not doing something when the Bible tells you to do it. And you can take that not only to baptism, you can take it in your life, you can take it in dealing with people, and you can take it wherever you want to go. That's what consciousness does. And I talk about God consciousness. Always being aware of God and His principles in your life and everything you do. Always doing what you know to be right. And as a Christian, as a pastor, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12, you and me having a good conscience toward God, it comes from the fact that we, everything we do, we commend ourselves to other man's conscience. We are open and transparent with no hidden agendas. And basically, as the old term says, that what you see is what you get. And when you do what's right with the Word of God in every situation in your life, then you have that good conscience toward God. That's how you have one. Now, we need to see this. Because he mentioned this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. An unsaved man, now remember now, an unsaved man has the Word of God on his conscience, which is in his spirit, which is in his heart, which is his mind, and that's what God uses to deal with him about his sin to get him to a place to either accept or reject Christ. Once you and I get saved, we have a double whammy of it. We get not only our conscience, but the Holy Spirit of God, who is the Word of God, living inside me and bearing witness with all of it as it goes together. But now an unsaved man from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, and an unsaved man or a Christian, unsaved man or a Christian, can sear their conscience with a hot iron. Ah, oh, what does that mean? You know, in the old days, before they had medical things the way that they did, and I love the way he says this, sear your conscience with a hot iron. Now, I don't know, and you had to be a real man to do this, but if you got shot in the arm or got knife cut back in the old days, you know, and there's no hospitals around, here's what they did. And you always saw, see the movies on, you know, a guy gets an arrow in his shoulder, you know, and they pull the arrow out, cut the arrow out. You know, what, you know what's coming. They heat up a big hot poker. And they hold the guy down, give him something to bite on, you know, and then, uh, you know, and then they take that hot poker and they stick that hot poker right in that wound and they, 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 cauter, they call it cauterizing that wound, see? And what it does, it seals up that wound. And it burns the flesh, and the flesh kind of cauterizes together, and it burns out the infection or whatever there, and it, you burn that sucker in there, and after a while, when you take it out, it, 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 you burnt that thing, that wound, to the place where it cauterized it. Well, that's what the Bible's talking about when it says, sears your conscience with a higher iron. You do the same thing. Now, I've got to tell you this. When you fix a wound that way, that's man's way of fixing it. That wasn't God's way for it to heal. Okay? God has a process by which your body will heal itself, 
But when you're in a hurry and you don't want to wait for it or you got to get something else done or whatever, you'll take matters into your own hands and you'll cauterize that thing with a hot iron. That's exactly what people do with their own conscience. Let me just say this to you. Sealing, cauterizing your wound with a hot iron versus letting it heal by itself will always leave a much bigger, uglier scar than if it were just healed by itself. And I want to tell you something. Searing your conscience with a hot iron to get out from under the conviction you're under instead of just dealing with it the natural way and asking God to forgive you and make it clean and make it right will always leave a worse scar than if you just take it to God. I love the way that he uses that. Sear your conscience with a hot iron. The natural way of fixing it versus the unnatural way. Man's way versus God's way. And when a person sears his conscience with a hot iron, what he does is he rationalizes the situation. What he does is he finds people who, who agree with him. He'll go around and tell people his side of the story till he finds somebody that says, well, I agree with you. And then now he, he, he sears his conscience. Well, see, I'm right because so-and-so thinks I'm right. I've even seen him go to the place where they go through the Bible and try to find a verse to justify it. We'll rationalize. We'll justify. We'll come to the point that we'll get out from under uh, the burden of, of the Word of God and us not doing what's right, and uh, we'll try to justify it and rationalize it and sear our conscience at a place where it doesn't bother us anymore. You know how you know this is true? When, I do, when you were younger and you did something wrong, that your parents, and this was maybe when you are still in very innocence, you did maybe the first lie you told. And maybe the place the first time you stole something. And you know all of your life, your mom and your dad told you that and, and had a set of standards. And you knew that was wrong. And when you did it, it you did it, but it, you really felt terrible about it. It really bothered you. It bothered you to the place where it just, it almost made you sick to your stomach. You see, that's what the Bible says in Proverbs. When God's word written in our hearts and our conscience, it's the candle of the Lord. What did it do? Searches the inward parts of the belly. That's your emotions, you see. It has an effect on you. Second time you did it, didn't bother you quite as bad, did it? Third time you did it, bothers you even less. Wasn't very long that you were, whatever you were into, you were an old hand at and it didn't bother you at all. You know what you've done? You've seared your conscience from that point to this point. When it really bothered you, now it doesn't bother you. You know what? There's things in our lives, every one of us, that we can relate that to, that there were things in our life that are probably wrong and not right. And you know what? We justify it and do what we want to do with it because that's exactly what, what we want to do. The best advice I could ever give you is to always do what the book says in any given situation. And when found to be wrong, you fix it by the same principles of coming to God and asking His forgiveness, but in the same principles that showed you it was wrong in the first place. You've heard me talk about latitude in life. Latitude. Bible says give no place to the devil. Latitude. The latitude in your life is what messes us up. Latitude in life is the distance between what the Word of God tells you to do and how much space you put between and when you do it. You give the devil two inches and, well, like I saw in a church thing, it was real good. You give the devil 12 inches of your life and he'll become a ruler. Yeah, he will. Yeah, he will. Yeah, he will. Now we got to look at this, and then we'll be done here. Let's talk about how conscience and guilt go together, or maybe better, how they don't go together. 
What's the difference between your conscience and guilt? You know, people like to put themselves on guilt trips, some people. Sometimes people let other people put them on guilt trips. What's the difference between conviction, which comes from the Holy Spirit of God in your conscience, and guilt? Built many times will be used as a tactic to get, you, to get what we want. Sometimes husbands will put their wives on a guilt trip about something so they get something back. Sometimes wives will put their husbands on a guilt trip so they'll get control of the situation. Sometimes your kids will put you on a guilt trip uh, to try to manipulate you. And, that, and that, you know, and sometimes people just feel guilty about everything. Boy, I've had people that just, they drag around the burden of the world, you know, and, uh, you know, and everything to them, it, it, they feel guilty about it. And, you know, it's the difference between understanding how this whole thing works. In a saved person's life, let me just say this, in a saved person's life, there should never be guilt. Never be guilt. Because, now, in an unsaved person's life, there's always guilt. Because an unsaved person hasn't had his sins forgiven yet. So he's guilty of everything, even if he hasn't done it. What does the Bible say? He that keepeth the whole law and offended the one point is what? Guilty of it all. See? An unsaved man is guilty, no matter what. But you and I had our sins forgiven. So guilt or guilt, feeling guilty should never come into our life. That's an emotional expense. That's something that is in your emotions. No, the word that you and I are looking for are conviction. And when you understand how the process works, that God, for a saved person, God put the Word of God on the tables of our heart. It's in our spirit. We have a mind to make decisions. We have, a, we have an, an emotion that makes us feel things. And inside, and guilt. You know, people like to put themselves on guilt trips, some people. Sometimes people let other people put them on guilt trips. What's the difference between conviction, which comes from the Holy Spirit of God in your conscience, and guilt? Built many times will be used as a tactic to get, you, to get what we want. Sometimes husbands will put their wives on a guilt trip about something so they get something back. Sometimes wives will put their husbands on a guilt trip so they'll get control of the situation. Sometimes your kids will put you on a guilt trip uh, to try to manipulate you. And, that, and that, you know, and sometimes people just feel guilty about everything. Boy, I've had people that just, they drag around the burden of the world, you know, and, uh, you know, and everything to them, it, it, they feel guilty about it. And, you know, it's the difference between understanding how this whole thing works. In a saved person's life, let me just say this, in a saved person's life, there should never be guilt. Never be guilt. Because, now, in an unsaved person's life, there's always guilt. Because an unsaved person hasn't had his sins forgiven yet. So he's guilty of everything, even if he hasn't done it. What does the Bible say? He that keepeth the whole law and offended the one point is what? Guilty of it all. See? An unsaved man is guilty, no matter what. But you and I had our sins forgiven. So guilt or guilt, feeling guilty should never come into our life. That's an emotional expense. That's something that is in your emotions. No, the word that you and I are looking for are conviction. And when you understand how the process works, that God, for a saved person, God put the Word of God on the tables of our heart. It's in our spirit. We have a mind to make decisions. We have, a, we have an, an emotion that makes us feel things. And inside, in my conscience, in my heart, is written the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God is sealed inside my soul and the two bear witnesses one to the other. When I know that, you know what? 
And I know this is true of you. The moment I do something wrong, I know it's wrong. I don't think ever in my life I did something that I thought might be wrong and I said, I need to pray and see if that was wrong. The moment I do something wrong and the moment you and I do something wrong, we know it's wrong. The Holy Spirit of God taps us on the shoulder and says, thou art the man. You're guilty. You did it. And he convicts us. He convicts us through the Holy Spirit of God. And that conviction leads to a process. Then guilt should never come into it. I don't feel guilty when I do something wrong because there is a process that I just take it to God and confess it and get it right, and then it's forgiven and it's taken care of. There's no reason for guilt in your life and my life. It's conviction. And when you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside you, and it's in your conscience, and your conscience bears witness with the Holy Spirit of God in you that you did something wrong, that's conviction. Then there's a process to stop that conviction. If thou shalt confess... Well, I'm not just, you talk about asking God to forgive you of your sins. Asking Him to forgive you of your sins. He's faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He, 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 right on the spot, He'll cleanse you and, and forgive you for it. There's no need for guilt. And I'll tell you something else. When you understand Bible principles in your life, you won't allow anybody else to put you on a guilt trip. Because people will do that. When you know... Conscience. Good conscience toward God. When you know you're doing what's right in your life to the best of your ability, when you know in your heart you love God and trying to be everything He wants you to be, even though we fail, when you know in your life that you want to give your life to God and you want to learn the Bible and you want to, you want to do what God wants you to do, there, that is your right and that is your. There's nobody that should take that from you. Never let somebody put you on a guilt trip just because of the fact that they don't want you to be in the Bible. Because it happens a lot. There will people will say to you, well, don't go do this because uh, let's, let's, let's go do this. And you know what? They have no intention of doing that. They just don't want you to go here and get what you want. You've got to know the principles involved. And when you understand the principles involved, you realize that you're right and, and someday you're going to be held accountable for it, is to be everything God you can be to God. And give God everything in your life you possibly can, and be everything for Him you can. There will be people in this world who do not like that. There will be people in this world that they will look at you trying to do what's right with God. They know they should, but they don't want to. You make them feel convicted, so they're going to try to mess you up so they'll feel better. And boy, if you don't know that's true, you got some things to learn about life. This is where your conscience, based on the principles of the Word of God in your spirit, keep you from wavering when somebody tries to knock you off your course. As long as you know you're doing what's right in any given situation, and you know you've done everything that God could ask you to do, and you're open and doing whatever God wants, don't let anybody put you on a guilt trip. Because you stand in a good conscience toward God. And that is your conscience or the testimony of your conscience. It's just that simple. Bible consciousness produces conviction based on a violated biblical principle. And when you, stable, when you stabilize that in Bible principles, then you are exactly where God wants you to be. 
So when Paul makes his reference to us having a good conscience in Romans 9.1, his conscience bearing witness with the Holy Spirit of God, he's simply showing us the function and the working of our conscience. Your flesh is separated from your soul and it's dead in trespasses of sin, never in anything good in it. Your soul was sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. But your spirit is that rudder of your life of the ship. It's not saved. It can go either way, what you decide to leave. If you give your, if you give your spirit to the ungodliness of this world, then that's the way your heart will go, your mind will go, your spirit will go, your conscience will resist, but in time you will sear it and you'll be just like the world. When I give my spirit to the things of God, keep in mind now, when I give my spirit to the things of God, that'll be my mind. And in that case, Philippians 2, 5, I will let this mind be in me, which was also in Christ Jesus. My heart within my spirit, Psalm 119, verse 11, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. My spirit, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Having therefore these principles, these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And then my conscience. When I put my mind in the right place through my spirit, when I decide to put my mind in the right place, my heart in the right place, when my spirit is based on the principles of the Word of God, then my conscience is built on the principles that form my Bible compass of life, and that is based on God's principles and His Holy Spirit bearing witness with me, and then I have a good conscience toward God in everything I do. And the reason why I can stand and preach when people don't like when I preach the reason why I can pastor a church when people look at us like we're a three-headed monster because we believe the book, because it doesn't matter to me. No one, in this sense, will ever put me on a guilt trip because I understand the principles involved. And I realize, and I can stand in the pulpit, as you can stand in ministering to people with a good conscience toward God, that based on the principles in the book, you're doing the right thing, the right way, at the right time before Jesus comes back. No greater feeling in the world than that. And that's why Paul could write what he wrote to the pulpit that he wrote to. Deal with the circumstances that he did and tell young Timothy, you need to always have a good conscience. You need to be before God in your conscience without offense, knowing that everything that we do is dictated by the principles of the Word of God to lead and guide us. You know what? This message ends right where it always begins, and I say it all the time, the importance of learning biblical principles. Getting them into your life, merging them into your spirit and building them into the conscience that you have that forms up that moral compass and then living your life based on the fact that by the book, you know you're doing it the way God wants you to do it. There's 5,000 people out there, Bob, that don't like you and don't think what you're doing is right. doesn't matter what they think. All that matters is what God thinks. I'm not looking. When I have a good, when I have a good conscience toward God and a good testimony toward God, that's all I need in this life. And that's all you need in this life. But make sure you're doing it by the Word of God. Well, next week's anniversary Sunday, we'll have a good time in the Word of God. Uh, plan to, uh, uh, if you want to be baptized and you haven't already seen me yet, please take care of that today and, and uh, I'll get you all set up. Make sure you take care of your tickets back there as quick as you can for the ball game. If you haven't signed up yet, today will be the last time you can sign up for anniversary Sunday because we've got to order the food. We've got to know how many people we have.